have a Bible, I encourage you to turn it into the book of Ruth because we're starting a new series on that book. Uh, Ruth is, in case you haven't been there in a while, a really very short book and it's in between 1 Samuel and Judges, so go back that way to find it. Um, you might have heard of the story of Ruth. Uh, it isn't long, it's four chapters, only 85 verses. And the story is pretty simple. Uh, a woman becomes a widow, then she finds a home, then she finds a husband, then she has a son. That's one way we could summarize it. Um, it's in part a love story, and a beautiful one at that. Jane Austen couldn't write a better one uh, about how a destitute widow finds a, a farmer, a handsome young farmer or whatever, and not young, but finds a man. Uh, so you might have heard it for that reason, that it's a love story. You may have studied the book of Ruth in a women's Bible study because it's a stellar example of virtuous womanhood. Ruth's character is just amazing. Um, you might have read it for that reason. You could even look at the book of Ruth to look at insights on worthy manhood uh, because when we look at Boaz, uh, he's also a good example for us. Um, however, none of those valuable themes are the reason for this series. Uh, there's a deeper lesson for the book, a more foundational reason that it was written. Ruth was actually written to show us that despite all appearances to the contrary, the Lord is at work in saving a people for himself. His kingdom and His salvation will come even when it doesn't look like it. It's a story of the hidden thread of redemption. And so if you saw that nice graphic that Savannah made for us, you see that phrase in there woven through the word Ruth. Um, that's what we're calling this series, the hidden thread of redemption. Let me explain why I say that about the book. It begins by telling us that this story happened in the days when the judges ruled. So that means that the story takes place against the backdrop of the time after Israel possessed the land and before they had a king. So it's a period of time in which God raised up various judges to lead the people, um, usually against some enemy that was oppressing them. So it takes place in the period of the judges, which is written in the book of Judges right before Ruth. And this was not exactly a highlight period in the history of Israel. Um, there's a cycle that repeats over and over again. Uh, the people do well for a while and they're faithful to God, uh, but then they start to wander off from the Lord. They begin to do evil. And so the Lord removes his hand of blessing and they are afflicted and he raises up nations to oppress them. They cry out to God for a deliverer, and he sends one to them. A judge, he was called, and he saves the people. And then there's a time of peace for a while. And then the cycle starts repeating over and over again. But throughout the book of Judges, the deliverers become less and less noble, and the deliverance becomes less and less permanent and satisfying until you get to the end of the book of Judges, and everything is kind of just collapsed um, they become basically no different from the nations around them. 
Uh, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how the book of Judges ends. Uh, so it's against this backdrop of, of the balance of power swinging back and forth between nations who are going to war with each other and this downward spiral of the culture into more and more evil that we have this story of a widow and a farmer. And you have to ask yourself, why do we need that story? Do we need another love story? Do we need another picture of virtuous womanhood or manhood? And we need those things, but that isn't the primary thing we need. What we need to see here is that the Lord, in the midst of all of that, is still at work. He is bringing a king to his people. A king who ultimately is Jesus, but the book of Ruth begins with a mention of the judges and it ends with a mention of David who would be King David, and then after him, later, King Jesus. And it's a story about how we go from the judges to the king, ultimately the king of kings. So that's why we're looking at it today, because it's easy for us to look at all the circumstances of our lives today. We look at our culture, and we look at the world and we can think that's where the big story is. That's where all the important things are happening. Who's in power now? And who's going to be in power later? And what's going to happen in the Middle East? And what's going to happen in South China Sea? And, and that has our attention. And it looks kind of discouraging. But what we need to see, and the eyes of faith that God wants to give us, are that He's at work in the small things, in the ordinary things, in the ordinary people who are doing the ordinary things of faithfulness to God day by day. And we have an example in Ruth and Boaz. So that's why we're going to look at this. Um, I hope you'll be convinced by the time we finish the book that God is at work in the ordinary things. That's where the big story is. That's where the story of his redemption is. He's at work in your life and mine. But before we do look at the book, let's pray. Lord, we do need to have our eyes redirected now to, to the great big picture of you bringing salvation to your people through Jesus Christ. And we need to have our confidence that that's going on according to plan, regardless of what's going on in the news. And we need to have our hearts filled with hope and with encouragement about the day-to-day -day stuff that we do in faithfulness to you. So Lord, would you help us? Would you give us that view today? Open up this scripture to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll read the passage in sections. We'll start with verses 1 to 5, and we'll make observations and application along the way. Beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. 
and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Uh, we might title what we just read, A Frowning Providence. A Frowning Providence. I take that phrase from William Cooper's hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Uh, it's a way of describing the bad things that God allows in his sovereign wisdom. Uh, two things stick out from this introduction that we read. One is that nothing good seemed to happen. <laughs> and the other is that the Lord is never mentioned. Uh, it's a tale of woe. A man and his wife and two sons, they leave Bethlehem. They go to another place to get relief from a famine only to have the man and his two sons die in that place. Uh, it's an out of the frying pan and into the, uh, into the fire sort of situation. Uh, and the Lord seems to be absent from the picture. Maybe your life feels like that sometimes. Uh, like you're doing the best you can to get through life, but things aren't working out and God seems like a non-factor. You switch jobs hoping that this job is going to be better than your last job. Um, you buy a newer car only to find out that it's a lemon. Uh, you get a college degree only to find out that nobody's hiring in your field. Uh, things like this happen. We take a path. It looks like it's the best path for us, but it doesn't pan out. It's a road that seems to go nowhere good. And where is God in this? You'll have times like that in your life. Because the Bible is a description of real human life. It's very honest about what we go through and what we get into. But the Bible also gives us perspective about our experience and about that experience in particular. In this case, there's more to the trials of Elimelech and family than meets the eye. Um, you see, the people involved here were not exactly innocent in what they did. Some of the stuff that happened to them, they couldn't do anything about. Famine, you know, can't do anything about that. Um, that was a trial that came to them. They weren't responsible for it. But what they did in response to the famine reveals that they had actually drifted in faithfulness to the Lord. They lived in Bethlehem in Judah. That's part of the land that God gave to Israel to dwell in. This is where they're supposed to be. This is the land in which where the, they were to live and they were to worship God and where God promised to dwell among them, especially in the tabernacle. That's the place that God created, saying, this is where I can be approached. This is where you have a visible uh, place that shows you and the world that I'm among you. So I'm going to have priests, and you bring your sacrifices, and there will be atonement for your sin, and you can bring your offerings to worship me there. And so I will dwell among my people in my place, and you will, you will be with me, and it will be well with you if you follow my, my law. That was, that was what the promised land was all about. God's people in God's place underneath God's rule. Um, but now, Elimelech and his wife and, the, and his sons, they leave that place. They leave the promised land. Um, and they move to, to Moab, uh, which is symbolic that they're, they're moving away from the Lord. I mean, the Lord is everywhere all the time, but, but this is his place. This is where they're supposed to be attached to. This is where they're to worship their God. And they're leaving that it's a symbol of them leaving God behind them 
Um, there's no evidence the Lord was leading them to do this. Um, there are other places in the Old Testament where God would say to go someplace. He told Jacob in his older years, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt because Joseph's there. And that's where I'm going to preserve you. That's where I'm going to make you a mighty nation. But even then, eventually they were coming back. Um, there is no indication that the Lord is leading them to do this. No, they, there's a famine they're looking at other places that seem more appealing, and so they're just going to go there. Um, they don't trust God for their provision where they're planted. They just take off. Their hearts aren't right with the Lord. And their choice of destination exposes that. Moab was not the kind of place a faithful Israelite would go in those days. Moab is the country that hired Balaam to curse Israel. <laughs> uh, Moab is the, the nation that Israel served for 18 years of oppression in Judges chapter 3. Um, there's no reason to go there if you're a faithful Israelite, unless, of course, it was to bring the blessing of God to the nations, but that's not their intention, um, because the passage says they went into the country of Moab and remained there, Literally, they went into the country of Moab, and there they were. <laughs> you know, no long-term plan, uh, no purpose, just there's food in Moab, there isn't any back home, so here I am, eating. Uh, it's a picture of people who are kind of drifting, just heading for the next green pasture. And there's evidence of spiritual drift. After Elimelech dies... Uh, the two sons of Mo, uh, they take Moabab, oh, Mo, Moabite wives for their, for their sons. Um, that's a direct violation of the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 7, 3. They weren't supposed to intermarry among the nations, um, but they're comfortable with that. Uh, they've drifted. They've drifted from the word. They're, they're not really underneath his, his, his rule anymore in their hearts. Um, so this family's not exactly a pillar of faithfulness to God. Uh, they're not just innocent victims. They're, they're largely doing what everybody else was doing in those times. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. There's a famine. Times are hard. There's some place to go where it's not going to be so hard, so let's just go there. And the Lord is not in the picture. Friends, that could be in our hearts as well. Hard things happen to us that we can't control. But our response to it reveals our hearts. We can rely on ourselves. We can re rely on our own sense of what is right. And we can make plans that are entirely need-driven and comfort-driven. They have nothing to do with faith in God. And there's a name for that. Uh, it's called ungodliness. <laughs> it's not just obvious wickedness that's ungodliness though that is, uh, I like Jerry Bridges' definition. Ungodliness is living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God. Living one's daily life with little or no thought of God, that's what this family's doing. Um, that's what we sometimes do. We can, that can describe the way that we change jobs. You know, this one's bad, that one's better, I'll just go there. Um, it can describe how we buy cars. <laughs> And what kind of car we buy, it, it can describe how we pick a college major, how we start a relationship with someone, how we spend money, how we save money. 
pretty much anything we do. Uh, we can do that with little or no thought of God, and that's ungodliness. That's what it is. Elimelech and Naomi and their sons thought they were improving their lives um, by walking away from the Lord, but it was a, it was a road that, that led nowhere. Um, in fact, what happened there? All three of the men died there. That's an illustration of what sin does to us and what sin deserves. The, the wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. There's a price to be paid for sin, for ungodliness. Whether that's the eternal death for our unforgiven sins, or whether that's the day-by-day eating away at your soul, the consequences that remind you of that ultimate death. Um, there is a price to be paid. Either, either you pay for it in eternity or Jesus pays for it in his life and death. But there is a price. Sin leads to death. And we see that as an illustration in what happened to them. Um, let's continue on. So they've gone off to Moab, not exactly a faithful family. The road leads to nowhere. They, they meet with a frowning providence, right? Um, so where do you turn when the bottom falls out? That's the question that's before us. What do you do, that? What do, you do with that? Where, where do you turn when you encounter <coughs> some of the things that you can't control, but then also your own sin gets mixed up into it, and you find yourself at the bottom, uh, you find yourself sort of at the crisis point. Where, where do you go with that? That's our question. Um, as things stand, Naomi and her daughters-in-law are in a hard spot. All three of them are widows now. Um, and none of them have children. Even though they were there for 10 years, married for some time at least. Um, they were barren. They didn't have any kids. Uh, now they have no husbands either. Um, they're highly vulnerable. Their futures look dim um, because in those days it was very important to have a husband or to have a son, somebody that could care for you, um, but they didn't have that. So now they've got to decide what to do next. So let's see what they do. Let's uh, read up through verse 18, but let's just start with verses 6 and 7. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, notice two things in the text. First of all, here's where we start to see the merciful heart of God coming into play. Um, here's the first mention of the Lord in the text, and it's the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So while Naomi is out in the fields of Moab, while she's there in her unfaithfulness, yet the Lord is not finished with her. Um, he makes his presence known. Naomi, God has visited his people. <laughs> There's hope yet in the Lord. In, it's, it's God's invitation subtle invitation to bring her home. That's one thing to notice. The other thing is that Naomi responds to that open door. Not with the best attitude, as we're going to find out. 
Not with the most godly of motivations. But she does decide to go back to Bethlehem. At least initially her two daughters-in-law come with her. So let's read the rest of it from 8 to 18. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to the people, her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So, we see that Naomi has decided to go back to Bethlehem with her daughters-in-law, but at some point along the way, she has a change of heart uh, regarding them going with her, and she urges them not to go, but to stay in Moab. Now, to understand her change of heart, let's put their situation in perspective. Ten years have gone by since Naomi moved away from Judah with her husband and sons, and now she's coming back widowed, and without her sons, but with two daughters-in-law who are not Israelites, but from Moab. People they weren't supposed to marry into. Um, people from a different nation um, that weren't part of the people of God. And so she's coming back um, with these two daughters, these two Moabite women, and there's a lot of potential for shame here. She's thinking about herself. This would be sort of like uh, you've got a, a lady friend who goes off uh, for a few years and you don't hear anything from her, and then she comes back with a, a toddler and no husband. And, and it raises the question, what have you been up to? <laughs> right? That's what was going on in her soul, partly, is that you know this obvious violation of the law uh, is kind of like there for everybody to see. So there's some potential for shame there. Um, but also, I think she was probably concerned for her daughters-in-law, um, whom she had come to love. Um, they're foreigners, and they were not likely to be well-received in Judah. After all, this is one of the nations that oppressed them. Um, 
It seems to me that, or it seems to her that they don't have a good future in Jerusalem, or, or, or rather in Bethlehem. Uh, she basically says, you're not going to find a husband there. Um, go back to your country where you can find a husband among your own people, but, but don't expect to get one where we're going. <laughs> um, because you're, you're, you're foreigners, you're not part of the people of God, and, and uh, they would be suspicious that you don't really belong here. Um, that's probably, and I think is, the way that many immigrants and refugees feel when they come to America. Um, you're, you're not one of us. You're, you're intruders. You, you're, you're not supposed to be here. That can be the way that many of our nationals who live among us feel. That's what they get from, from some Americans. But the Lord has a totally different attitude toward the nations. His blood was for all nations, for all races, all peoples. Um, and yet, back in that day, uh, Naomi is very aware that her daughters-in-law are going to have a rough time of it if they come with her. And so she's worried about that. She says, go back home to your, to your people, to your gods. Um, you'll probably find a husband there, but not where we're going. And so Orpah and Ruth have a choice to make. They have to decide for themselves how are they going to respond to the frowning providence what are they going to do in their widowhood? Do they move forward and go into the land of Judah and Judah's God, Naomi's God, or do they return to Moab and to their gods? This connects with our lives because this is a picture of the choice that faces all of us. We are like the widows. Uh, like them, we're broken people. We have our history of sins, and hardships. We're all damaged goods, so to speak. Uh, none of us is whole and healthy all the way through and through. And the Lord holds out the promise of provision for us, particularly provision for our sins, that we might be forgiven. But what choice do we make? Will we go to Him in our dependent state, or will we not? So let's consider the choice that the two daughters-in-law make. Orpah decides to turn back, back to her people and to her gods, as verse 15 says. In other words, she looks at the cost of going to Judah and being under the God of Israel, and she made a choice that made sense to her, uh, which was to go back to her life without the Lord. She thought the chances were better there. Uh, so she goes home to her mother. She walks out of the pages of the Bible, and we never hear from her again. And that's all stated very matter-of-factly. Um, but that, if you think about it, is very, very sad. Because it means that she walked away from salvation. She walked away from the only one God who can save. <clears throat> she may have gone home to Moab. She may have found a husband. She may have had a big family. She may have lived a, a great life back home. But she left behind the one thing she truly needed, which was the Lord. And in the end, so far as we know, she received the wages of her sin, which is death, the eternal death. It's a fearful thing to consider what eternal consequences follow such seemingly sensible choices. That's sobering. We make a sensible choice. This looks good to me. And its end is death. 
how easy it is to walk away from the Lord for a relationship or for more money or to be liked or to indulge yourself in hobbies. It is, as Jesus said, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and many are those who enter by it. So many that we think, well, it doesn't lead to destruction, really, does it? Since everybody's doing it. There's no issue, right? And yet the reality is that it leads there, leads to destruction. When you walk away from the Lord, whether that's to a big family and money and a house, or that's into drug addiction or whatever, all those ways still end up in the same place. It's the way many people's lives will end, but I hope none of yours. Because it doesn't have to be that way. There's an alternative, which is the choice that Ruth made. To go on to Judah and to follow the God of Israel, no matter what it cost her. Let me just read her response again to Naomi in verses 16 and 17. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. That's probably one of the most beautiful expressions of commitment in the Bible. <laughs> uh, today we might want to just sentimentalize it though and put it on a plaque, you know, in our house. Um, you know, somehow connect that maybe to weddings. Um, but we need to think about what Ruth is saying here, uh, but what she's expressing to Naomi and what it was going to cost her. Uh, the commitment level just keeps on increasing as she talks. She's going to go where Naomi goes. Okay, I'll, I'll go with you. But she's going to do more than that. She's going to stay wherever she stays. There's an attachment here. More than that, she's going to identify herself now with Naomi's people. So she's leaving behind her whole heritage. More than that, she's going to submit herself to Naomi's God. She chooses the God of Israel over the gods of Moab. Now my worship, now my hope, now my future, I'm laying it all in, in your God. And there's permanence to this relationship. She's going to die where Naomi dies and be buried with her. In other words, I plan on spending eternity with you. That's how long this is going to last. And this is all sealed with an oath of self-imprecation, it's called. She's calling down a curse on herself that if I don't do this, may the Lord do so to me. Um, there's nothing short here uh, of Ruth laying down her life for Naomi, is what she's doing. It's total commitment, no matter what happens. She knows she might not get a husband. She knows she'll probably be an unwanted outsider. This isn't her country that she's going to, but she does it anyway out of the commitment of love. This is all the more stunning when you consider Naomi's response, which was not what she would expect after a pledge like that. You know, after all this incredible outpouring of love and commitment to Naomi, Naomi's, what? It says, verse 18, Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her. She said no more. 
Literally, she stopped talking to her. <laughs> no word of thanks, no recognition of this sacrifice, no reciprocal expressions of love. She just stopped talking to her. Okay, I guess we go. <laughs> that scene sounds familiar though, doesn't it? Isn't what Ruth did exactly what the Lord Jesus has done for us? Hasn't he poured out the greatest love that can be imagined? And yet we're so ungrateful so often. We, so, we think so little of that sacrifice. Ruth's vow is, is rich with gospel realities because it's really the reflection of the very heart of Jesus for us and our unworthiness to receive it. Ruth would lay down her life for Naomi, but Jesus laid down his life for us, taking in himself the curse for what we do. And he plans to be with us forever. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Ruth identified with Naomi and her people, but Jesus identifies himself with us. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, according to Philippians 2. Naomi surrendered herself to God. Jesus became obedient to the God, even to the point of death, the point of death on a cross. Ruth planned to stay with Naomi even in the grave. Jesus makes sure that all believers spend eternity with him in heaven. He prayed, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory eternally. That's the commitment Jesus made to sinners like us who are like Naomi, largely ungrateful and unappreciative of the sacrifice that he made. But he loves us still. Even though we don't deserve it, he doesn't take back his covenant that he made with all who believe on him as Savior. Ruth's sacrificial commitment to Naomi points us to the sacrificial love of Jesus for his church and her sacrificial commitment to Naomi's God also reflects what it looks like to be a genuine disciple of Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Jesus said in Luke 9. To follow Jesus involves sacrifice. It does mean a choice. This God, not these gods. I identify with his people, not these other people. There's, a, there's an all-inness to it, to make up a word. There's a, yes, I'm going to you now. I'm leaving back behind what was there before. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And Ruth was like that. She made what seemed like the harder choice, but it was the right choice because she set her hopes on the God who saves. And she would not come to regret it as we'll see in the rest of the story. And neither will you if you put your hope in Christ. So where do you go when the bottom falls out? What does it reveal about where your hopes are? Let them be with the Lord.
Let it be looking to Christ for forgiveness of sin and for daily withdrawals of grace and mercy. All are sure of a welcome with Him. He is gracious and merciful to sinner. And the last part of the passage shows us His merciful heart again. Let's move to the last scene in this chapter and see what happens when they arrive in Bethlehem, uh, which is the homecoming. Okay, the homecoming. Start in verse 19. We'll read through 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, coming off Ruth's eloquent and moving expression of love for Naomi, this response from Naomi comes as something of a shock. Um, as the contrast is, is very stark in terms of what's going on in their hearts. I mean, here we get a picture of the state of Naomi's soul when she comes back to Bethlehem. And, and how do you describe it? She's bitter. She is bitter. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara which means bitter. What is she bitter about? She's lost her husband and her two sons. She's bitter about how her life turned out. This is not what she expected when they moved to Moab. Life was supposed to get better. There was food there, and there was a famine here. She was just following a sensible plan, at least to her, and look what happened. Now she's without a husband and without sons, and her future looks bleak. And the person she is bitter toward is God. Listen to all the things she says about God. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. This is a woman who's concerned, consumed with bitterness at the frowning providence about the trials that God has hand to her, handed to her. She can't find enough ways to say how unfair it all is. <laughs> this is the only thing she can think about. And that's all she wants other people to think about also. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. When you see me, think about how bitter my life is. Think about how, how unfair, how cruel God has been to me. She has a victim mentality. And she wants everybody else to join her in it and see her as a victim of God who deals harshly with her. But here's what's missing in her view of things. What's missing is an awareness of her own sin and an awareness of God's grace. Remember, she's the one that walked away from the land to go to Moab. She's the one who agreed to marry off her sons to women that God prohibited. She's not exactly guiltless here, but she's not aware of her own failing. She's only aware of the frowning providence of widowhood. 
But more importantly, perhaps, is that she is not aware of how God has been gracious to her. She says, I went away full and I came back empty. How does that make you feel if you're Ruth standing right next to her? <laughs> you came back empty? Really? <laughs> what about the fact that you have a daughter-in-law who loves you and is committing her life to you and will stay with you to the end no matter what? Empty? What about the fact that you came back at all and you didn't die like your husband and your sons? What about the fact that you're here in Bethlehem where the Lord has visited his people and has brought food? We can be like that. You know, all our attention goes to the hard things in life. And we forget what our sins truly deserve and the grace that God has actually given to us. And we can become bitter like Naomi. We wear our pain on, a, on our sleeve and it, it becomes our identity. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because that's what I am. That's who I am. I'm the unfortunate victim of God's severe hand. And we can live our lives nursing a self-righteous grudge against God, telling ourselves we deserve better, deriving an unholy pleasure from thinking that God owes me. That's not a pretty picture, is it? But we can go there in our hearts. Naomi went there. But again, here's where we see the merciful heart of God on display once again. Because even though the passage ends with Naomi feeling this way about God, we also see that God has not abandoned Naomi. Let's read the last verse, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now where do we see the heart of God in that? Here's where. After all is said and done, what does Naomi have despite her bitterness? She has Ruth. She's back in the promised land, and it's the beginning of the barley harvest. In other words, she's not alone. She's in God's place, and the Lord is going to provide for her. This is the providential hand of God that she arrives just when the food is abundant. So it is for all who come home to the Lord. No one who comes to him will be rejected. Whether your faith is as strong as Ruth's, or whether it's as weak and tainted with bitterness like Naomi's, all who sincerely come home to the Lord and look to him for help will receive a welcome. His provision is for all his people. You might be someone who's having a hard time with God right now. You may have some disappointments. You have some expectations that God hasn't met, and you struggle with that. You may feel like you've gone out full and returned empty. But if you belong to the Lord, if you are truly one of His people by faith in Christ, His mercy is greater than your bitterness. He's, his grace is still working for you even though you don't see it. 
As William Cooper's hymn goes on to say about the Lord, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. In truth, Naomi didn't go out full and return empty. It's just that she didn't have a clear picture of what true fullness and true emptiness look like. Emptiness is to be without God. Fullness is to be in His presence and to belong to Him. And in that sense, Naomi actually went out empty and came back full. She went away from the Lord to pursue fullness in the world, and she came back to the Lord, accompanied by one who pledged to lay her life down for her and to be with her forever. And that also is the state of the Christian. We start out this life going away from God and toward the world. And then God, in his, He puts a frowning providence in our way, something that makes us look for help. And He shows us His Son, and He sends us His Son to walk with us back home, back to the place of His blessing, just like He did for Naomi. That's what it's like for you and me. There's grace for you and me. There's a future and there's a hope for all who journey with Christ. It's the beginning of the barley harvest for us, so to speak. We haven't gotten the full harvest yet. We don't have all that God intends for us, but there's hope there. There's the beginning of it. There's the down payment of the Holy Spirit. There's the down payment of the fellowship of the saints. There's the down payments of those moments when you draw near to God and He draws near to you and you see that He's good. And one day, the fullness of that harvest, life forevermore in His presence. Because we walk with someone who is with us always, who laid down His life for us, Jesus So the Lord invites us to look beyond what tempts us to be bitter and to see his smiling face behind us, frowning providence, and believe that he has good things in store for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this picture of your hidden thread of redemption. So many things that are, seem more immediate to us, seem more important to us, seem uh, more threatening. And yet, underneath it all, there's this sustaining grace, there's this pursuing mercy, there's this walking with us that you do. And so we, we ask for eyes to see it today. For everyone here that's dealing with whatever circumstance that tempts them, Lord, let them see that you walk with them if they put their trust in you and that it's only the beginning of the harvest. In Jesus' name, amen.